Please spread the word about my shows. I'm an independent creator and I would really appreciate it. I make K-pop guides, as well as I have exclusive interviews with songwriters, journalists, the artists themselves, best new music roundup episodes, artist-specific deep dive episodes, episodes about the history of K-pop, all sorts of content is covered. So to get your fill and support an independent creator, please check out 17 Karat K-pop wherever you get your podcasts, and view an episode guide at howtostand.substack.com. Hello everybody! I am so excited. Truly, I have not loved a webtoon this much in a long time. Honestly, I recap Seven Fates Chaco for you all. Not for me, not a huge fan. Seven Fates Chaco just, like a lot of webtoons just for me personally, has not really resonated, which is why I was extra pleasantly surprised to fall so in love with the Star Seekers. I will tell you when the spoilers will start in the second half of the episode, but if you want to know what happens throughout the entire first installment of The Star Seekers, this is the episode for you. And also be sure to subscribe at howtostand.substack.com. I will have some complimentary writing up as well about this in the coming weeks. Without further ado, here is everything you want to know about the webtoon The Star Seekers. The Star Seekers are overtly an extension of the TXT music video universe that I broke down in a couple of previous episodes, TXT story recap, Minisode 2 theories, etc. So it is overtly a reference to what is happening in their music video world. So the stories are kind of one and the same, and what is just a parallel versus a direct instance that is just identical to what happens in their videos, what's similar versus one in the same, that can be up to interpretation in some moments, but it is just important to keep in mind that context. The Star Seekers is a webtoon about the members of TXT who in this story play members of a five-person boy band from UVIC Entertainment. This group, Star One, is really flopping. It is three and a half years into their career, the agency's really unhappy with them. They have not really struggled with a hit song yet. And part of the issue is because they're in this magical realm where the difference between being an A-team or B-team artist, what they call tier one or tier two, is your ability to have magic powers. And at their age, to try to make it in music and not have the literal magic powers yet, that deep into their career, that is kind of embarrassing. So the CEO is really upset with them. They've lost the company billions of won. Episode 1 actually pins the number at over 6.6 million US dollars in lost revenue. So the company is really strapped for cash, partly because of that, partly just to punish and further publicly shame them. The CEO has taken away their car access. So they ride the subway to work. And if still Sona hit it big, so they can do that and no one recognizes them as anyone worth paying attention to. They're obviously then very, not just embarrassed, but disappointed in themselves because they see all of these people, all these other musicians, getting the fame, the attention they want, and flexing magical powers, the ones that gave them that prestige. And they have none of that. They feel so weak, so lacking. What's wrong with them? The ultimate lesson then? Careful what you wish for. Because when they do develop powers just out of the blue, during an enemy attack mid-performance, they finally get what they wanted, magic powers, they were starting to think would never show up, an enormous chock-full schedule of promo, a huge boost in the number of fans they have, and a transition from Tier 2 into the Tier 1 idol category. 
The basic premise then is these boys, once they finally realize they have powers, they need to figure out what the heck to do with them, and why enemies are after them, and why people are kind of in a power struggle over who gets to influence them, take them under their wing more, a lot of questionable motives of the people around them, because everyone wants a piece of the so-called boys of destiny, who might help create the dawn of a new era, a new utopia. One of the members is Sol, S-O-U-L-E, aka TXT's Subin. Sol's mother is Lot, or Lot, I apologize if I say it wrong. Lot is a world-famous star, super, super famous. We'll talk more about her later. Just know for now, Sol and Lot are not really close. She didn't really want him to get into music at all. Kind of acts like she doesn't know him. She consciously does not use her own name to give any clout to Star One, show any public endorsement of them, any public seal of approval on his career choice. And he's always feel like he hasn't amounted to much, especially being that famous superstar's son. When he does develop powers, we see that his powers include premonitions, being able to see the future. He also can generate shields, works well with a bow and arrow, and has traits associated with elf heritage. He is the group leader, as well as the group worrywart, and it seems worth mentioning the main message associated with each TXT character in their music videos. Subin's line is, remember my name. Then there's Viken, aka TXT's Bumgyu. Viken is the ultimate adventurous, childlike spirit, the group cheerleader, but he has a secret shy, distrustful side too. He gets skeptical and serious too. He's quite three-dimensional. His whole thing is healing power, especially with the help of plants. Plants work in tandem with him because of his tree spirit heritage. He also helps save their bodyguard at one moment by putting up a shield. We'll get to that, but he does have several powers. Taho is the bookish character, aka Taehyun from TXT. Taho comes across a mystery spell book. He can cast various spells thanks to his wizard owl heritage. This spell book, though, we'll get to that. Much to say about that later. Also notable, his color-changing eyes. Avi's is Hyuninkai from TXT. The youngest member who, as you'll recognize from some videos, can summon animals, kind of Snow White style, birds and squirrels. And he has white bird heritage. He can also sprout wings, as Hyuninkai has multiple times. His character's main warning is, don't go up the stairs, which seems interesting given that his character can fly. Bumgyu's main line for TXT's story, I need to get out. Taehyun's main line in TXT's story, what have we done wrong? Lastly, Yeonjun from TXT, his line is, I can't breathe. And in the webtoon, he's Eugene. Interestingly, Eugene is the oldest, but contrary to what's typical for K-pop, not the designated leader, despite being the oldest. He's the last to get magic, so he's left quite resentful of others. In overtly, in the webtoon, there's a scene that's identical to a video scene where his character is leaning against the wall of the practice studio, looking just disappointed, distraught, distracted, having to just witness the other members practice, flex their skills, and he's left feeling totally lacking, totally unworthy. He has lots of skill with a sword, and he has warrior and deer heritage. So sometimes he has antlers. So the members of Star One, Sol, aka Subin, who can really work a bow and arrow and generate shields and has premonitions. Avi's Hyuninkai, he has wings and summons animals. 
Viken, Bumgyu, the cheerleader with healing, plant-related power. Taho, fascinated by the spellbook, wizard heritage, cast spells. And Eugene, the last to get his magic, and he has skill with a sword, and sometimes shows off antlers. There's Lot, Sol's mom. Banya is another character to keep in mind. He's a main villain. The UVIC CEO. There's Choi Jinyun, who's Taho's friend. We'll get to him. Then there's Alistair, who is a character with questionable motives, one of the people vying for influence over Star One, and another person who seems less likely to be the villainous one, but we'll get to the complexities of this later, DK, who becomes their manager. They're skeptical of him, sometimes you'll see it's for good reason, but seems more trustworthy if they have to choose between keeping DK or Alistair as company. Notable, though, DK and Alistair knew each other back in their UVIC entertainment training days. One of the fascinating moral quandaries this story covers, the law of causality. In their world, this is basically the view of every action having a reaction. Every time you use magic, there is a consequence. The more intense the magic you use, the greater the consequence. So if you rescue a cat, for example, you might end up getting a cut on your arm. And if you rescue 10 cats, you might end up bleeding 10 times more profusely from your arm or some other limb. And it makes for some interesting moral dilemmas because it's almost like a system that punishes you for doing good deeds. But at the same time, it is a way to remember and teach a lesson about keeping some strength for yourself and using magic kind of sparingly. Lots of ways to read into what that message sends, but when they talk about causality, that's what it is. Some sort of injury to oneself due to having used magic. And DK actually has permanent scarring on him because of some unknown causality. Causality seemed to come for Jinyun as well. He's Taho's friend, who for years they lost touch, and part of the reason is because he left training to be an idol. After he tried to fast-track his way to magic powers, and that backfired spectacularly. Led to a lot of health issues, and it seems like it was all because of a big causality, using more magic than he was really capable of at the time. But interpretations can vary about the particulars. They haven't revealed much in any part of the first installment in this series what really went down with him. His full backstory has yet to be fleshed out. Now, spoiler alert, because we're diving into episode one, and going to just sum up each chapter in this story. Episode one starts with the members on a subway. And right away, a moment speaks volumes about how much Lot's superstar status hangs over Sol's head, wishing he could live up to his mom's potential. Because while he's sitting on the subway, as a punishment, he's watching a newscast with a Chiron saying, Lot got back from her world tour just now. Really quite a, an emotionally packed moment. Star One show up for rehearsal. They are substitutes, so they get to fill in for a Tier 1 artist-filled episode of Music Bank. It's 500th episode special. They get increasingly nervous as they are backstage, watching the acts before them in the lineup, who all have magic, because this is a Tier 1 show. So they all kind of flex magical powers as they sing and dance, so they're like, how on earth do we follow up after they perform? The answer is, I guess you don't. 
because they get up there, barely get started, and Sol is so thrown, so startled by the fireworks and the special effects that he is thrown backwards. The producers are really ticked off. They're like, you guys are such babies. You're not prepared for this. Get out. You're wasting our time. Literally, the webtoon says crickets when the big night comes and the crowd is told, give it up for Star One. Literally crickets. Then during their show is when what they call a terrorist attack hits the stage. These evil Grim Reaper-esque creatures and flames start terrorizing the stage. Episode 2 starts out with an evil, masked character who bows down at the feet of his leader, apologizing profusely, like, their powers were evident, and we didn't expect that from them. We thought they were lacking, but they weren't. We could not lure him in. We could not lure the Boys of Destiny in, like a piece of cake like we thought. Sol regains consciousness and is in the hospital with his bandmates surrounding him. This is where they meet DK, who introduces himself as their new magic trainer and manager. He says, this is crazy now. You proved you could manifest powers that toppled the bad guys during the attack, that survived the attack. And so, paparazzi are camped outside the hospital right now. Headlines everywhere are all about this new once-to-watch in Star 1. There's also a great headline they see that just perfectly summarizes the entire story, really. Tier 1s flee while Tier 2s fight back. Perfect summary for an underdog story. And just kind of a David and Goliath theme. Avi's blames himself for not coming to Sol's rescue, but Sol doesn't see it that way. Sol is told that DK wants to meet with him in private. So as they're out of the hospital now, in a car, it stops, Sol gets out, and the other members are left muttering about how sus this new manager seems. In this private talk, DK is questioning Sol, saying, I could see right away, your power is unmatched, you are destined for massive things. So much you can do with that power, let's test it. And it appears DK is using his power to telepathically steer the car. The other members are still in the car that now starts moving towards crashing. And that's where episode 3 starts. All of a sudden, a bunch of tiny blue translucent creatures are flying around and floating above the members after Sol does save them. They lie on the ground now, though, by the car, like they've been spent. Whatever happened wiped them out just mentally. But they're fine physically, and Avi's is starting to realize he conjured the little blue creatures to show up. He can conjure up magical animals and quote-unquote real-world animals to aid their spirits and provide healing energy. We don't know if Avi's actually generated the creatures, but that's reasonable to assume. But DK says the reason Avi's is not really controlling his magic well is that the key, apparently, is desperation. The word desperation is used a lot in this story, not in a bad connotation way, just in a way to say you've got to really, really deeply want this and focus on getting it. Desperation plus concentration. The members end up having a private heated debate about whether or not they could really trust DK, but they decide, well, it doesn't matter, we need him. And DK says to start training, to hone in their powers, they should go to Magic Island, where they appear with a snap of DK's fingers. Magic Island is a very concentrated area that becomes 100 times more powerful when you're using your magic there. You'll recognize in the webtoon images, it's exactly the setting of Blue Hour and other TXT videos. The members are still like, DK almost let everyone but Soul get killed in a car crash, and now he just dropped us on an unfamiliar island and just dumped them. He left. 
So what the heck is he doing? How can we trust him? But we have to. We have no choice. No one else will guide us. Not even Soul's own mom. As they're wondering what the heck is happening, who to trust, they can at least trust each other. Episode 4 then focuses on basically recreating the scene from the Frost video, where they see a, a mysterious tent enter it and this fortune teller promises to share secrets with them. In the video, they flip cards over, see images on them that are symbolic, and the place just abruptly freezes over like, no, you know too much now, can't see that. Time kind of freezes over. In this version of the story, that doesn't happen, but they are interrupted because this hooded figure, who, by the way, I have a theory Lot is the hooded figure in this scene. Just keep that in mind. We don't know who it is, never see their face, it could be her. Anyway, this fortune-telling person says they can help them find their true names, what their true names are, and that she can do that because only people who have enough desperation are able to even enter the tent. So the images conjured up before their eyes are symbolic. There are antlers in warrior gear, white wings, a box, kind of like Pandora's box, one of them upside down, an image as if he's in a cocoon of sorts, and then there's Soul, who before he can see what he gets, a tree branch wraps around him and pulls him backwards. So his premonition is a yikes one, just a big yikes. His future, really bleak. And then suddenly, they find themselves back in a grassy field, like this never happened. The one sign they have, though, like in the TXT music videos, that proves no, this wasn't just some big hallucination, we were really there, is what's left behind, one trace, a book. The spell book. Which at this point just looks like a book full of blank paper. Episode 5 starts with a flashback, unclear if it is the member's flashback or someone else's or just for the viewer's benefit, but we have a flashback recapping when that henchman had to apologize at the foot of his leader for not capturing the boys quickly, like they expected. The plants really do start to take over, and there's a flashback to an image of Sol as a baby in his mom's arms, the members are kind of in a traumatic moment, in a feud with these magical plants that are twisting around them, kind of Harry Potter Chamber of Secrets style. Then DK shows up to save the day, hits the villains with a massive blast, but Sol has been deeply injured. A very odd scene, reinforcing how weird DK is, unfolds because Vikan is like, Sol is bleeding, let's go to the hospital, and DK says, quote, we could try leveraging the reduced magnitude of consequences here, unquote. Basically, the causality might be actually worse if they leave Magic Island, but still kind of a weird reaction. He's quite cold, keeps a lot of his feelings close to the vest. Anyway, so he encourages Vikan to help him just pull something out of Soul. Then says, go check on the others. I will watch him. It's almost like he's testing them individually. First Soul with the car crash, near car crash, and now Vikan with, can you help revive Soul? Vikan is so excited. He's really kind of learning how to use plants to his benefit and feels like now he can defeat the villain someday, not have their tentacles wrapped around him. He can direct where their branches are wrapped. So he's just very cutely, youthfully as always, just very cheerful and happy, like, I'm a superhero now. So excited to blabber on about that to Tahoe. Soul is like, what happened to that villain earlier? All that DK will say is that he sent the bad guys away for a while. Very vague. In episode 6, Vegan learns that his tree spirit heritage has a downside. 
in a quite symbolic detail. Every rose has its thorn. Every plant has its thorns. In this episode, now their CEO is hyped. He's like, it's time for a comeback. You guys are really at your peak right now. It's time to seize the day, take advantage of this PR, and have a big, big, big moment. So he orders DK to schedule a big comeback performance ASAP and insists they need to prioritize the magic skills in the choreography, a chance to flex their powers. He later, though, gets really mad at the group, who are really sweet looking out for each other, trying to make sure even members like Eugene, who don't really know how to use powers yet or what they even are yet, feel included. The performance does not center only the members who have stepped into their magic power. And so he calls them punks, really just throws a fit, because he's like, you're not listening to me, let's prioritize these people. This subplot is introduced then with Tahoe and Jinyun. Jinyun hadn't been reaching out for years, but suddenly does again, and Tahoe is really touched. Just by the simple good luck message Jinyun now gave him. Of course, though, you could always interpret that in a different way, like suddenly friends want to reconnect with you after you're famous, but I like to think of it as a sweet gesture. Tahoe stays up late, looking at the spell book with all the blank pages, and checking messages from Jinyun. The next episode shows the members talking without Eugene around about how much they really do want to make sure he still feels included in the performance, despite not having the magic the CEO desires. Taho looks at the spell book again and now sees text has appeared on some of the pages. And it includes the life hack of you can borrow someone else's magic, just a PSA. You'll get a causality, but you can. So he starts considering all the new possibilities. Jinyun is apparently now a budding YouTuber who starts a live stream that Taho joins, excited to see his face again, then sees him looking physically really unwell. Something's really off about this live stream. So he starts deciding, what if I borrow Vikan's healing powers and send them to Jinyun? So Taho asks DK, what if I did that when they're alone in the hall? And he looks very quizzically at him like, I'm kind of shocked. You can read the text in that book. You can borrow the magic if you have the ability to read that text. But wow, I'm surprised the text appeared for you. Taho says, Vikan, say yes to whatever I'm about to say. And he does because he's super trusting, I guess. And suddenly, before Vikan can really process what's happening, Taho has borrowed his powers and instructs this magical white bird to go find Jinyun and save him. This was a big ask, and it leaves him bleeding profusely as his causality. Episode 8, DK shows up, says in his typical cold, hard-to-decipher way, is just like, I knew this would happen, I'll take him to the ER. On the way there, Taho's watching the live stream. Jinyun feels better, and looks better, says he was sent this magical healing energy and wants to thank whoever sent that good vibe his way. It's interesting that when Taho gets back from the ER, he's in a sling and says that's pretty minor. That his bleeding was actually on the low end of the spectrum of possible causalities and that his magic manifested even more subtly than others. There's a really interesting scene with a lot of depth to it now because Taho explains what he did and Eugene's really mad. He's like, now that you're injured, you're not going to heal in time for our big performance. What are we going to do? We have to change up the whole routine because of you. And that brings up some really interesting moral questions about when you sacrifice to help one person. Are you doing the right thing if by helping them, you're also hurting someone else? 
And does quantity matter? Tahoe chose to do what would help one person, as opposed to four people, his fellow bandmates, and he would have helped them if he had just let whatever happened happen to Jinyun and kept his energy and health for their big comeback. It also, of course, is a complicated thing to think about because both choices sound pretty good. Help out your bandmates, help out your friend. But is he his friend because he just reached out after he got famous again? But he also was in more distress. So is it quality over quantity of the need? Like if one person is profoundly in distress and four people are predicted to in the future be distressed, do you save the one person? Probably, but it's morally really, really hard. And it's just a very interesting, revealing scene that shows the depths of these characters. They're really multifaceted. Eugene's anger and inner resentment towards the other members for being able to one-up him with magic right now really shows itself, as does Tahoe's naivete about what people would say in response to what he does. Eugene does kind of drag his feet, lacks motivation, so as they do things like run laps, he's like, what's the point? Do I even need to build up stamina? And he has this attitude again in that dance practice room scene, where he just watches the others flex in and practicing their powers. The members are like, hey, can you come help with this one move? And he's like, I can't right now. I gotta get some air. And he just angrily goes for a walk. When he's out alone, he finds a cat with one purple eye and one green one. This cat just stares, doesn't move away, isn't spooked by him at all, which strikes him as odd. In episode 9, Vikan comes out to talk to him. And it's a really nice episode where Vikan just sort of is there as a friend to comfort Eugene and say, we're not mad at you, we understand. Eugene is kind of cheered up a bit, and they decide to head back to the studio, but they take the cat with, because they realize it's bleeding from its leg, and that something must be really wrong because it has stayed immobile this whole time. It went from being a weird quirk to concerning. So Eugene wraps up the cat in his jacket, and they go back to the studio. Meanwhile, back at the villain's lair, the henchmen insist they are preparing a trap, and this time it's surely going to work. They're apparently planning a big attack again, because now one of them says, Our goal will be to minimize civilian casualties. Alright, well that's calming to hear. Banya's evil smile is what ends the episode. Episode 10 again shows this CEO being so unlikable, if you ask me, and he's bragging to investors about Star One's comeback show gonna knock your socks off and it's gonna do all this amazing stuff. So now he heaps praise onto these boys that he basically said the polar opposite of about them being losers before. Soul has a nightmare that will eventually we'll see comes to life with evil forces involved and he sees a pair of glowing cat eyes in that dream. The cat that they rescued is staring at him when he wakes up still. There's a revealing moment the next day when they're getting ready to film a performance, and they pass Lote. Eugene is like, so go say hi to her. He just sort of brushes away like, eh, she's probably busy, which leaves Eugene thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how much they're kind of strained. For this big show, Star One are no substitutes. They are the main event, the big finale. And sure enough, their show is literally magical, but interrupted by the enemy. Banya and company show up again. Their fireballs and dark magic attack the stage. Sol is really extra shocked because this is exactly what happened in his nightmare. DK shows up to project a force field and tell them to GTFO. But Vikan is very insistent. DK can't handle these guys on his own and tries to help. Eugene eventually also tries to help. But these guys, they don't know what they're doing. They really want to help, but they really, they think they can do these things, but they just can't. 
This magical cat shows up on set and asks Eugene if he wants total power. So Eugene is first of all like, what's the catch? Total power? And second of all, he's like, oh my gosh, this cat's talking. And then he finds out the cat is also stopping time. Temporarily. So in this moment, that's a literal scratch freeze frame moment. Does he want to take power? That offer is what's considered in episode 12. And she doesn't say tons about her backstory, but she does admit, yes, I'm a talking cat. I come from a different world, and I can't go back to that world until I find something. He does decide, yeah, I want the power. I know it will come with responsibility, but whatever. And then his antlers grow and then turn into a sword. In episode 13, the fighting is ongoing. DK is at a breaking point. He's used a lot of magic, cannot take more causality. There are a lot of flashback scenes flashing through their minds like they're about to die, life before their eyes kind of a thing. Somehow, a couple of them just stand there without a scratch on them. So the villains are kind of like, what the heck? They're surviving all these flames and stuff like nothing happened. Then the villains are kind of blinded by bright white light coming from a pair of wings that descends. Possibly what Avi's or Tahoe generated without trying to. In episode 14, Avi's does indeed have his own pair of white wings. The villains fully realize in that moment, oh yeah, we were right. These are the boys of destiny. And they're extra shocked when, in combat with Avi's, they realize he doesn't just have wings, but equal power with a sword. His sword is not inferior, like they'd expected, and again, being underprepared is their issue. Not only do the villains get freaked out and shocked because they see Avi's has wings, but that his sword is actually on par with this villain's, which is really unexpected. They're equal competitors, which throws the villains for a loop. Again, ultimate underdog story here. Deacon is very helpful, actually saving DK, oh how the tables turn, by generating a force field. Avi's once again feels like maybe he saved the day somehow, but isn't sure how. It keeps happening subconsciously. And this time he saves two girls. Two little girls who got trapped in this floating, translucent cube, just floating amid the chaos. Presumably he helped keep them up there and away from danger, and in sort of an invisible bubble away from danger. So no one dies in this major battle. Episode 15 focuses on Lot and Sol's relationship. Flashing back to the first day, Sol first said, Hey mom, I want to join UVIC Entertainment to train to be a rookie artist. Lot responded with a lot of disappointment, concern, but now we have more context behind it because she just feared so much for his safety and lack of success, the uphill battle he would face in the music world because of his lack of magic. And you see in that flashback, with the worry in her eyes, her demeanor, she's clearly very torn. She wants to support his dreams, but just worries about if they're even realistic. Then in a pivot back to the present day, amid the chaos, members are really spent. Sol and Vikan in particular, really burnt out, just lying out on the ground, DK tending to Vikan's wounds, lope to souls. Causalities here really taking their toll. This sus character in a suit and sunglasses shows up, and he's like, don't worry, Lote, I'll take your son to a safe place. And DK, his thought bubble says something to the effect of, now you show up? How are we supposed to trust your legitimate, trustworthy security if you show up after the climax of the danger? The medics finally arrive, and DK continues to be like, what were all you people waiting for? Sol is put on a stretcher and in the ambulance. 
The security blocks Lot and DK from entering for, quote, security reasons, unquote. So the security are like, we restrict who can be in here for security reasons. That seems suspicious, especially because fine if you don't want to let two people in, but at least one. And that is what eventually they renege on. They let DK in, but not Sol's mom. The manager can come in, but not the mom, which again is really weird. Episode 16, they arrive to the hospital, Sol is rushed away. The security are now like, you guys should get treatment here too. They are suspicious and don't really need it, relatively. So they say no. Lot, this is when she really starts to flex her high persuasive power. She really knows how to say the right stuff to get what she wants. Her persuasive power really comes to the forefront and she's like, fine. But first, I need you to answer some basic questions. Who are you? Who do you work for? She holds firm until he's like, fine, but we have to go somewhere private to explain everything. One of the guards tells another to, quote, get started. And then when no one's looking, what he gets started on is dripping purple potion onto Sol. Sol's eyes flash bright purple as this liquid drips onto him. The spell book magically pops up after this happens, and the guards look shocked. They did not expect that the spellbook to magically poof to his side, to his rescue, following the potion. The members don't know they were fed this potion. They were all unconscious, but they have been fed it and are all revived now, except Eugene. Meanwhile, one guard starts talking in that private room with Lot and DK. Extra notable details from this scene are when we find out this guy is Alistar's accomplice, that these people wear gold rings with a dragon symbol on them, and that Lot and DK have to sign NDAs before getting to hear any intel. Lot continues to stay on their good side, playing along, because when she sees the dragon ring, she actually does bring it up, but makes them think, oh, we're in the clear. She believes the wholesome front we've created. She's playing along like, oh yeah, I've heard about the dragon sect. They do great charity work and invest well to boost talent in the music world. They conclude their talk with another guy in a suit showing up, explaining that, look, we've all been trying to protect Star One. We all believe in them. We have the right intentions. Please trust us. If you have to go to a private room, sign an NDA, and then be begged to trust someone, I would advise you to stay skeptical. Episode 17 sees the return of the cat. After the guards act freaked out, like not only a spellbook popped up, but a cat did, who's talking, the cat calls them high maintenance, and then says, quote, I was the one who opened up the origin for you, unquote. She tells the boy she opened up the origin. She's really sassy and coy when they want her to elaborate. She says, well, all the answers are in that book, the one where all the text is not legible yet. When they ask how do we know if you're not lying, all she does is smirk in response. Then she later says, so far, everything I've told you is 100% true, which is sus because she added the so far caveat and that she hasn't told them that much so far at all. So okay, you've told us the truth so far, but you haven't told us much of anything. She also continues to be such a cat, literally and figuratively, such a sassy pants. And she says, quote, don't blame me for the pain you got because of the rules in your world, unquote. 
They're like, what rules? And she goes on to talk about causality, which is interesting because it implies in her world, the one she can't go back to until she finishes her mission, magic does not create causality. That's what's implied, which opens up a lot of questions, more than answers. The cat is like, I'm done helping you, but we'll meet again, and then poofs away. Eugene is now awake. And the boys talk among themselves, sharing this worry because those terrorists, as they call them, during the attack, said they're the boys of destiny. But that's also what perceived friends have called them. Friends and foes, using the same term for them, makes them really confused. That's it for today. Tune in next week where we pick up with chapter 18. Bye, everybody.